Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen, amen. Open your Bibles, would you, to Genesis chapter 14 as we start a new chapter, studying through the Bible verse by verse, allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us. I've entitled our Bible study today, The Rescuing Power of God. The Rescuing Power of God. Now you can jot it down, I'll read it to you. In Micah chapter 7, in verse 8 it says, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, when I fall. I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. You remember last time Lot and Abram, they separate and Lot finds himself in big trouble as he chose for himself the city of Sodom and Gomorrah as the place where he wants to live. On the other hand, we have Abram who becomes a great encouragement to us, a man of faith. He's known to us in the Bible as the father of faith. He's known as a lover of God even though he's beset by human weaknesses. He's so much like us. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, that may be a word to you, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Abram is a normal man like you and me, fraught, filled with error and difficulty and sinful decisions. He fell, Abram did. I mean, right after we're introduced to this man, great man of faith, the very next chapter finds him telling his wife to lie after he runs to Egypt as a response of fear when famine hits the land. Remember, Egypt is always a type of the world system. And what we have is Abram running to the world, running to the world for help. And while he was in Egypt, he tells his wife to lie and she becomes a part of Pharaoh's harem. And God speaks loudly and painfully to Pharaoh. Abram wasn't in a position to be hearing from God at this time. So what does God do? He talks to Pharaoh and Pharaoh kicks him out. And he gives him some things and they leave Egypt. But where did he end up? This is all by way of review, by the way. He ends up back in Bethel, the place where he first worshiped God. And that's been something I've been meditating and chewing on for many weeks now. You know, how in Revelation, the instruction to the church in Ephesus is to remember from where you have fallen, to repent, and to return. And so many times we look at that and go, oh, look how far 
Ephesus, look how far the church in Ephesus went where they started in, as you open up the book of Ephesians and you learn how they were enriched in every spiritual blessing, God used them greatly. And then you fast forward 30 years and you see how far they have fallen. And almost always that instruction is is in that place of how far you have fallen, how you've left your first love. And certainly there are times when when it's demonstrated in a very large way But the more and more I've been meditating on this little section of scripture, the more and more the Lord's been impressing upon me that that's a daily rhythm of life, that we don't have to fall so far away from God and leave the love of God so far that finally we finally remember. But there are those needs on a regular basis to remember from where we have fallen and to repent, to have this godly sorrow of where our life is and return to the basics. And I love this. Abram gets back to Bethel. Then problems arose between families. Not so much between Abram and Lot, but those that were with him, their family and their servants. And remember when the land was too much, Abram, he gave Lot the choice. You just choose whatever you want. We, we have to separate. We don't want, I don't want these fights. I want our family to stay intact. So, so you pick whichever way you want and I'll take what you don't pick. And he humbled himself. He's back in tune with the Lord. He wanted to be, as Jesus would teach later, the servant of all. So he he wanted to be great in God's kingdom and he learned to be the servant of all. Go ahead, Lot, take whatever you want and I'll be happy with what's left. He's no longer in this season. Because again, what what are you going to learn with Abram? He goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Anybody have a life that reflects that at times? (laughs) Yes, I made progress. Well, how was Tuesday? Oh, not so good. Well, how was Wednesday? Really good. How was Thursday? I don't know. Let's not talk about Thursday. And it's just a battle for that steady progress. Well, Abram is thousands of years ago is demonstrating a pattern very similar to ours at times. And he steps in this problem as a peacemaker. He doesn't use his authority. He doesn't use his age. You know, typically Abram should, Lot should have submitted to Abram, not the other way around. But he steps in with humility. And it reminded me, perhaps it's something that God wants to teach you and remind you today, that a lot of people have a problem with humility and meekness. First of all, it's not a characteristic that's valued in our culture. Only the strong. A whole new system of philosophy, and I guess you could call it a religion in and of its own, humanistic evolution, teaches teaches in a very base level I mean, forget about all the details at a very base level. What does it teach? The survival of the fittest. You better fight for your life. If you want to make it, you need to pull and take people out. And here you are. If you've made it this far, then look how strong you are. Look what God is, look what you have done apart from God. You don't need God. But meekness and humility are so vital. And so important. To step into this, Abram was trusting God. Humility is a place of great faith in God. You are saying when you take the humble route that you trust God over your own resources. That you trust God over your own plans. Where you trust God, you know, with Lot, if that's the choice you make, then I trust that God will even use your bad decisions you're difficult. I think of how many times in our families, there's so much family conflict, so many difficulties in some families, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of trauma, 
a, a lot of difficulty taking advantage of one another, and then to take the place of humility and say, okay, if that's the choice you want to make, I receive and accept that choice in Jesus' name. I don't like it. I don't want it. My natural response is to fight back and get the upper hand. That's where I feel most comfortable. Uh, you know, not just Ed. You're like, Ed, you're really messed up. No, I'm speaking for us. We feel most comfortable when we have a sense of control. But humility says, I will choose to trust God who's in control of my life. Even in this. And in reality, as Abram responds in humility, you might look and go, but Abram, you're giving the best of the land up. You're giving it all up. Why don't you assert you've earned it? You're old. You have seniority. You, you have the place of the patriarch. You're the man of faith. You're the one that God called. Lot is just a tag along. And you're going to give him the choice? How could you give so much up? But in reality, Abram didn't give anything up. His life has always been in the hands of God. After Lot chose the land towards Sodom, God came to Abram and said, you know what? I'm giving everything to you. It's all yours. As far as your eye can see, all the land belongs to you because God meets us in humility. I would even go so far to say that God is attracted to humility. That his heart is near the brokenhearted. That God draws near I, I had a scripture. I want you to turn this one. I've read a few, but would you turn over to Mark's gospel with me? Mark chapter 10. A reminder of the teachings of Jesus here in Mark chapter 10. When you get there, jump to verse 28. Mark chapter 10 in verse 28. Love this. Peter began to say to him, and really, let's go back to verse 23 because it's really the context of the teachings. So in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said, and you remember the rich young ruler came. And so this is at the end of that. He says, and the rich young ruler was not willing to give up everything. Kind of like he's the exact opposite of Abram. He's not, gonna, he's not willing to give up what would really position him to follow Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. How hard it is, verse 23, for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus again answered and said, children, how hard it is for those who, notice the, what he adds there, who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And again, they were astonished beyond measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with men it's impossible, with, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Now, of course, the interpretation, the, the root of this text is certainly speaking about riches. Jesus is very clear. But he's using riches and the attachment to money and things to prep us, to prep them and us today to talk about humility. What you hold on to reflects your humility. He, he was willing, the rich young ruler left in a worse condition He's one of the few people that meets Jesus and leaves his presence in a worse condition than when he first came. And as he's walking away, Jesus says, you guys see what's happening. He, he missed out. He'd rather have his riches. He'd rather trust in his riches. And although it probably didn't look like it physically, he walked away prideful and arrogant, thinking his riches were more valuable than giving all up to follow Christ. Now, verse 28. 
Then Peter responds and he says, see, we've left all to follow you. And, and again, it's like, I see him walking away with his stuff, but Jesus, look at us. We've left everything. We don't have anything left. There must be some special position for us. That's really what I think the attitude is here. And then Jesus answered, Assuredly, I say to you, there isn't one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake or the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And then here's the essence. Here's the summary. Many who are first will be last and the last first. If you'd like to write in your Bibles, verse 31, just say humility. Just write it down, humility. The last is going to be first, and the first will be last. This is a lot here. He chose first, it's going to get him in big trouble. It's always best to leave the decisions to God, because Lot chooses for himself Sodom. He chooses for himself the place of burning. And friends, His family will pay a steep price for this decision. It will progressively get worse. But already, notice what happens, chapter 14 in verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, Chertolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of nations, that they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Sodom is now in war. Where did Lot choose? Sodom. He chose a place that was appealing to the eye, and now they're at war. Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinob, the king of Adma, Shemember, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they serve Cheder Laomer, and in the thirtieth year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and Zuzim, and Ham, and Emim, and Shaveh, Kirith, Athiam, and the Horites in the mountain of Seir, and as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Verse 7. They turned back and came to El Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon, Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zebuim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, they went out and joined together in the battle in the valley of Siddim against Cheder Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, the king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there and the remainder fled to the mountains. Verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their provisions and went their way. Pause there for a second. You read through and it's a very uninteresting list of names that are hard to pronounce in areas that you probably don't understand. You're like, why did you even read through that? I want you just to accept, at least in the English translation here, I want you just to accept the mess that Lot got himself into by choosing, choosing that area for himself. Just, just all these names and all these wars. They, 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 he went from one little conflict of his servants fighting over land to feed their animals. And, and Abram says, look, this, this can't, I want to save my family. We can't keep going this way. Lot, just choose an area. 
And Lot doesn't pray. He, there's no mention of him making a response spiritually. He just makes a decision, sees something. His eyes are appealing. You know, this area is appealing to him. You know, bright lights, big city. He comes to that area and all of this nonsense becomes his life. There's a lot of applications there, but I would just say that be careful when you choose for yourself. That choice may find yourself in a lot of nonsense that really has nothing to do with you at all. But now you're caught up in it all. Not only that, I stopped on purpose at verse 12. All of this is happening. And then notice, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. This is the first mention of war in the Bible. It's also the first mention of a non-Hebrew name. Now remember earlier we learned that God scattered the nations by confusing their language. Now they're fighting one another. That's the progression away from God. Now in all of their separation, they're wanting to fight one another to take advantage of each other. And there's five city-states basically that we read that have been subject for 12 years until they rebel. And Sodom and Gomorrah's side, they lose. And Lot is captured. And here we have yet another problem that Lot causes for his uncle Abram. Notice verse 13. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. So Abram gets word, most likely from one of Lot's servants, that were upset with Abram and his servants. And it's interesting when, when you, there might be a lot of fighting, a lot of friction, a lot of difficulty, but when you get in trouble, you even ask your enemies for help, or at least ask people that you were talking about before. There is a, a forced humility. You see, Abram, you know, the Bible speaks about humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he'll raise, he'll raise you up. And Abram is doing that. However, if you don't humble yourself. God has his ways and means where he will humble you. And now Lot and his servants are being humbled. They got, they got stolen and kidnapped and all their stuff lost because the city they dwelt in was captured in war and they become the spoils of war. So here, one who had escaped, probably one of Lot's servants that were upset before, now isn't upset anymore, comes to Abram for help. Now, Abram was a normal person. We've mentioned that. You'll hear it many times in our study. He had struggles and faults and failures. He had his times of tremendous faith. He also had his times of spiritual growth. And I want you to know that even if we described you today of ups and downs, God uses the ups and downs of your life. Everything is used. Nothing is wasted by God. God uses the ups and downs. I find that... Abram's faith, when he responds to his failures properly, his faith grows in God. God reveals himself in a new, fresh way, and he begins to trust God in even deeper ways. In your successes, God will reveal his purposes in how he wants to work through your life. But also in your failures, God will reveal his power in new ways to redeem you and restore. Again, jot it down in Romans chapter 8, in verse 28. It says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And sometimes we read that verse, well, God works some things together for good. 
But we'll look at a failure, or we'll look at a season, we'll look at a difficulty and go, God works most things for good, but not this. It's not this. Or you might respond, God, God will use some things, but you know, I'm the one that got into a mess here. I'm the one that made the mistake. I did it willingly and rebelliously. No, well, God, the Bible is very clear. It's not some, it's not most, it's, it's all. He, he doesn't say, as we've learned in previous studies, he doesn't say that all things are good. Don't misunderstand the, the scripture. He doesn't say all things are good. A lot of things are really, really bad and very, very painful. But God will use the good and the bad, the success and the failure. I mean, Paul himself, who wrote Romans 8, would know this firsthand. He was once a man bent on death and destruction. Here in the coming weeks, as we study through verse by verse in Acts, we're going to learn about this guy as Saul. And we're going to learn just what an angry vicious. I mean, the Bible talks about him breathing in and out threats and murders. That's the kind of guy he was. With, a, with an ability to say that God has approved this behavior because I'm going to clear, clear out these Christians so that the religion can be pure. He, he was bent on destruction until the wonderful grace of God melted him and changed him to the man on a mission to save the very souls he once tried to snuff out. Imagine that. The very people that in some ways he was successful. The very families, the very communities that he wanted. Damascus itself became a mission field for Paul the Apostle. So Abraham hasn't been perfect. He hasn't fully obeyed. He's been weak and feeble. And yet God continues to bless him because he went back to Bethel. And at the place, the house of God, he began to hear the voice of God again. He began to be in unity and communion with God again. And here, God orchestrated that as Lot is going through great trial, Abram is in the position to receive this word. Because I think when you read the Bible, you've got to put yourself in it sometimes. If Lot's caused you all this, all this strife, and Lot, Lot has caused all these difficulties, and now Lot has chosen for himself... He doesn't humble himself. He doesn't choose, no, Abram, you're my uncle. You choose first. He just takes it and takes off. And then he, you get word from one of the guys that probably was one of the complainers. He goes, no, we need your help, Abram. Don't you think some of you, maybe one of you at least, besides me in the room, would think, you know what, Lot? You're on your own, bro. What is the phrase in the world? You made your bed, now lay in it. But again, that would be the carnal way of responding, wouldn't it? And that's not, Abram's in a place where he's hearing from the Lord. It reminds me, I want to be in a place where I can hear from the Lord, even from my enemies. I want to be in a place where I can hear from the Lord so that if an old enemy shows up in my life who's caused me great pain and anguish, that I would be open to serve him as my friend and minister the gospel to him or to her. We read in Micah, you know, that in that beginning passage in Micah chapter 7, it's like, you know what? God, you will take care of the issues with my enemy. You'll take care of them. I'll be able to see it. But I'm not going to take things into my own hands. And Abram doesn't do that. Even though Lot would not be in the category of an enemy in his life, Lot doesn't take things into his own hands. And so notice, it says in verse 14, he says, Now Abram, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive... He armed 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit 
as far as Dan. So his response was 318, uh, hey, let's get together and let's go rescue. Let's go to war. Lot's decisions now pull Abram and his servants into war. And it says in verse 15, he divided his forces, so he's mapping it out. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So he maps out a military strategy and says, let's go, boys. Let's go take care of and rescue Lot. And I love that. And I pray that in our congregation, in our church, you know, that our hearts would be soft and that we would fight the right battles and we would fight the right battles together and not be fighting one another, not perpetuating the division that's in our culture, that, that we live in, in a very real way. We live in Egypt, but we wouldn't be like Egypt that we live in this world system, but that we would have a life that reflects the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. We're in a battle where logic and reason are no longer valid tools to convince people. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives to take the seeds that have been planted and the seeds that have been watered so that the Holy Spirit in our lives, as we walk forth in mercy and truth and grace, would be able to give the increase of the work that God is doing on the earth today. That we wouldn't become like Egypt, but that when it's time to go, man, we're out. And we would rescue anyone else that is stuck. If not Egypt, you, you know, if you make Egypt your home, it's going to get worse. So you, you want to make Egypt your home, then Sodom is next. And when you get to Sodom, there's going to be a lot of warfare there. You're just asking for more war, more enemies, more difficulties, and then you might even find that you thought you could handle Sodom. And this isn't the last time, by the way, Lot gets in trouble with Sodom. You can read ahead as we have future studies. This isn't the last time. Sodom is going to become a thorn in his flesh. It's going to wreck his family. You know what happens with Sodom and Lot? He loses his wife to Sodom. Because while he was able to, in his mind, finally come to the conclusion, we got to get out. His wife looks back. It affected her far deeper than it did him. And ultimately, he loses his wife. Notice now, as we change the second half, in verse 17 now, the second half of the chapter, there's a transition to, from this warfare and rescuing and the faith of Abram now. And by the way, just all, everything that Abram did, 318 servants going to war against all these cities, states, and nations, took a lot of faith to trust God. He went, man, he's not looking back. And I'm going to go get Lot. We're going to go take back what the enemy has ripped off, even from my family. That's the place of strength, you know. The place of strength is not only will God restore to you what the locust has eaten, but you become now a power to go take what your family, what was ripped off from your family, what was ripped off from your mom, your dad, your grandparents, your extended family. You become the place in your home and in your family that is the place of warfare on behalf of others that can't war for themselves. I mean, that's, just, that's a whole Bible study in and of itself where your family's taken captive and you're the only one that's just interceding and praying for them by faith. Even sometimes in our families, there'll be everybody's lost faith, but not you. And you just make that your prayer closet. 
Abram, that man of faith. Okay, let's switch now to this place. The king of Sodom, it says in verse 17, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom, or the king of wickedness, comes to meet Abram, and then is overshadowed, though, by verse 18, then Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, if you were with us as we study verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, we've already met Melchizedek, but this is the first time he's mentioned. Remember, Salem in Hebrew means peace, so he is the king of peace. You have the king of wickedness and the king of peace, and he brought out the bread and the wine, which would be future pictures of the very bread and wine that Jesus shared at the Last Supper, at that last meal at Passover that would then speak of the broken body and the shed blood. He brings bread and wine. He was the priest of the most God, most high. And notice he blesses him and said, blessed be Abram of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him, again, if you're following along, in verse, at the end of verse 20, he there, and he gave is Abram. So you could say, and Abram gave him a tithe of all that he took in war. He gave him a tithe. Now, before he can even speak, before the king of Sodom even has a chance to talk, the king of peace shows up. God is ready to give you peace in the midst of wickedness. I mean, that's a great picture here. It's like the, all of the book of Genesis is just filled with so much beautiful pictures and typology. And here the king of, king of wickedness sees the strength of God in you. And then before he can even say a word, the king of peace shows up. And we believe Melchizedek, as although there's a lot of debate on this, I believe he's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, a theophany you might hear, or, or a Christophany. And before, he, before Abram can speak, before the king can speak, Melchizedek shows up. We know that he is the ruler of Salem, which would be ancient Jerusalem, and he comes with a blessing. His name means king of righteousness, and he's the first priest in the Bible that we read about, and he brings the bread and wine, and after giving these as gifts, Abram responds by giving him a tithe. Now, three times in the, book, uh, in the Bible, Melchizedek is mentioned. Number, first time, right here in Genesis. Second time in Psalm 110, and then finally he's mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 7. It's through Melchizedek that a new priesthood is established. The next priesthood mentioned uh, from Genesis going forward will be the Arianic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron. And that is of the, the priesthood oversees the Jews and the temple. Now, of course, this is Melchizedek is one of the many places where theologians, scholars, People love to spend their whole entire lives debating and arguing over his origin, the nature, and of course it's a tough passage. But the essence for us today, I think, is that you have a high priest that lives forever. His name is Jesus. That now even Melchizedek becomes a picture and a type of the high priest that's to come, king and priest, holding both offices. And I want you to notice here another debatable passage about giving. That Abram here gives a tithe of all. A tithe, by definition, is 10%. A tithe is 10%. Of everything that he had, he gives to the prince of peace, the city of peace, to the prince of righteousness. He gives a tenth. 
And it's very common today to hear both sides of this, that tithing is absolutely necessary and you must tithe. And then there are those on the other side, it's like, no, you never need to tithe because tithing was a part of the law of Moses and the law of Moses has been replaced by Jesus Christ and he's delivered us from that law. But today I want you to notice something that in the biblical teachings, the principle of the tithe preceded the law. And that the man of faith is giving and participating of his own free will. It wasn't required, it wasn't requested, but of his own free will, he gave a tenth of all that was his, acknowledging it was from God, he gave to this priest. By the time the law was written, the requirement of the tithe and the giving of the Jews had actually increased by three times. So that giving was far more than a mere 10%. And while it's true that you and I are saved by faith and faith alone, faith does produce works. And one of the areas that you can test yourself the most is in your giving. I don't merely mean in your giving to your local church or congregation. That, that's, a, that's a slam dunker. That's an easy one. I mean your generous heart and the place of generosity. It is not mandated that you give 10% anywhere in the scriptures for the new covenant believer. So if anybody lays that trip on you, anyone says that you must do that in order to be right with God, it's not true. You may be surprised though that in the New Testament, what's required of giving is actually more than 10%. Let me show you what I mean. Turn over to Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. It's way back at the end of the scriptures. And let me show you what I mean. Actually, uh, if you got to Hebrews chapter 12, look at it and then go to Romans 12. That's not where I want. Go back to Romans I'm thinking of Romans 12. The, the mandate of the new covenant is far more than 10%. And for some of you, this may be the first time you're hearing this. It, it, is, it should be shocking to you. This, this is one of those passages of scripture that should shock you and really cause you to pray and think about it. Because you just read over it like it's no big deal, but this is huge. Verse one, Romans 12. I beg you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So even before we think about Egypt, before we think about Sodom, before we think about our role in this world, before we think of how we live in this world, how we avoid compromise, before we ever get there, God says, this is the business that must be done. Your, your absolute 100% giving of yourself to the Lord. That's where it begins. It doesn't begin with platitudes and direction and points. It begins with surrender. Because we are filled and surrounded by the mercy of God, Paul says you've got to present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Not a sacrifice that is laid on the altar and sacrificed and burned and gone, but a living sacrifice, which implies that you're repetitively, repeatedly offering yourself a sacrifice. Or would Jesus say, if you desire to follow him, that we would learn to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow him. So the mandate in the new covenant is that you give everything. 
It's not measured in numbers. It's not measured in paychecks. And it's not measured in any of the measurements that we might try to hold on to. When you give everything to the Lord, he begins to lead you on, on those other little things. He'll speak to you if you should help that person asking for money on the corner. He'll speak to you if you should help a family member. He'll speak to you on what to give to your local church. He'll speak to you on how to use the things that he's given to you for his glory and ultimately for your good. That's why so many struggle with giving because they don't give of themselves first. And then they're just like, well, let's count it out and let's get, you know, let's make sure that we, we count it out exactly and let's make sure the number, well, give yourself to the Lord and if that's what the result is, then great. I think the tithe is a great measurement to start. I think as a pastor recommending to you, and I've done these studies in depth in 2 Corinthians, you know, the Bible not only mandates giving ourselves, but the Bible also talks about giving cheerfully hilariously, excited about how the resources are going to be used for the kingdom, excited about what God has given to us from hearts of gratitude, not selfishness, not holding on, not, and he even specifically says when it comes to giving, when you're giving to your local church, he says, don't do it grudgingly. It's not designed to give you a burden. I can't believe it. They don't need it. Why am I? Like, it's not designed for that. It's not designed for you to be mad at God for what he gave you. I mean, it's just a twisted lie of the enemy. I'm never going to give anything. Well, you know, your life will probably reflect that. That's your position you take and you think it's from the Lord. You know, then you'll probably be very selfish, very self-centered, very, very much about holding on to what you have. And then most likely, there's a good chance you'll also complain about what you don't have. You're spending all that time with closed fists and then being upset, well, I can't, well, I don't have more. My neighbor has more wives. Well, why don't you try opening up your hands and giving it away? No, no, no. If I give it away, then I'll have nothing. That's the point. Because then you're beginning to take all that God has for you. And as you, take, as you receive, you give. As you receive, you give. And we come to God with open hands, not clenched fists. And it's been said that if you want to look for areas of your spiritual life or measurements for your spiritual life, you know, now these days, you used to be the check your checkbook in your little register, but now everything's online. So just take your app out and look at where your money's been going for the last couple months. And you'll know where your heart is. You'll know, because the Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart is. And you can see, it's like, well, man, I've been helping here, here, here. And if your checkbook reflects helping, then your heart is full. If your checkbook has been hoarding, then your heart becomes hard. And God has just given that. It's like, here, I, I have every, you know, if you, you think too, everything that we have has been given to us by the Lord. That's what the Bible says. It's not just because we have a job and it's not just because we went to school and it's not just because we have education. It's not just, no, all that we have, what, the Bible says, what do we have that we haven't been given to you by God? And so it all belongs to him. And the tithe shouldn't stumble us. The New Testament sets up this far greater rate than the tithe as we learn to give cheerfully, bountifully, faithfully, obediently, and then come back as we close this chapter, verse 21. Now the king of Sodom speaks, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Just like, just like the world and the king of wickedness. Give me the people. 
give me the minds, give me the bodies, and you can have the stuff. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. He's the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that's yours, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Abram knew where his blessings came from, and he didn't want the stuff. I don't want anything. I'm not going to allow you to ever take credit for the blessings of God. I don't want your stuff. But the people belong to the Lord. They belong to the Lord most, God most high. And to me, this is such a great picture of integrity and character. I won't take anything from you because my provision is from God. And you want to hide this one in your heart. You don't want to be, you don't want, I don't want any man any institution, anyone to block the flow of blessings from God directly to me, which means I need to learn not to trust in man. And I need to learn how not to trust in the institutions of man. And I have to learn not to trust in the leadership of man. And I have to learn that this is not my home, that I'm a citizen of heaven first and foremost. I have to learn we want to be able to give all the glory and the credit to God. Do you know a few years ago when we were the beginning stages of the pandemic and such, they opened up that big, that short window for the government giving money to help paychecks and stuff. You guys remember that? I think they called it the PPP checks or whatever. And, and we heard about it and we heard, man, the government's giving money to the church. We are getting in line for that. And we did. Called our bank made a few phone calls, filled out a form, and boom, when you know it, they sent the check right away. But it was a heaviness that we were carrying because it wasn't of the giving of the church. It was the government giving money. And, you know, there was some discussion among the elders and going back and forth. And, and in, in a couple of weeks, we just couldn't take it anymore. And we sent it back. We don't want it. We don't want it, although I'm sure we could use it for the glory of God. And I have to say, sometimes I wish we would have kept it, but that's just my flesh. Like, that was a big check. It was so heavy to take to the post office. It was so heavy. It was a huge check, but you know, integrity and character represents the leadership of your church. And in one, in one sense, we didn't need it. Not one penny of it. The purpose of it was to keep your payroll going and the church going and never once during that whole time did we have any need even when this room was completely empty as a church family so many of you were faithful and you're giving unto the lord even when nobody was on the property we didn't need it but number two this principle kicked in we we don't we, we don't need it and then it was kind of hard, but you had, you know, we also don't want it. It was hard to get out. We also don't want it. Take it back. We want to stay independent and free as a church to be able to say an answer to the Lord and to you and to anyone else. You know what? We didn't need it. We don't want it. And we'll continue to do what God's called us to do as the church. 
of Jesus Christ. I know other churches took it. I'm not, this isn't a statement as you're listening on the radio of some judgment or anything. It's what the Lord spoke to us about. And I'm sure we could have justified it. We could have done a lot of it with it. It could be, I'm sure we could, but the Lord didn't have that for us. Abram's doing this here. David will do it later when he's buying the land to build the temple. He says, I'm not taking anything that doesn't cost me. I don't want anyone to take the credit for the work of God. I want to be able to say that everything to this date, 22 years of being a ministry here, everything to this date has been through the faithful giving, large or small, whatever that might be, of the men and women and the boys and girls in Sunday school, the people connected to us through the radio or through social media or have given faithfully and met the needs of our church for 22 years. Met the needs and above to be able to be very, very generous with other churches and other ministries so nobody gets the credit but God. And that's one of the benefits of participating and giving unto the Lord. Small or large, being faithful as unto the Lord so that you can say here, you know what? I will take nothing, not even a thread of a sandal strap. I'm not, I don't want anything that's yours, Abram says. That, that's significant, that is serious character on his part. Why? So that at the end of the day, we too could be studying Abraham's life and saying, you know what? All the credit and glory goes to the Lord. And God blessed this and ministered this. And one more thing before we head out. I'm struck by, in this text, the silence of Lot. I'm struck by the silence of Lot. There's no mention, as you read ahead, you know, Abram gets another vision in chapter 15 and life goes on, but there's no mention of Lot even saying something simple like, thank you, uncle, for saving my life and my family's life and getting me out of this jam, getting me out of this mess, getting me out of this war. There's no mention, not even a thank you. Life just goes on and he heads back to Sin City. He finds himself in a place where he's going to be. Um, even greater difficulties await him. And I just reminded, even today as we were having our devotional time uh, as a team this morning, we were reminded of the lepers, the 10 lepers, but only one came back with appreciation. I mean, can you imagine being, being complete? It's a death sentence having leprosy and, and you're healed, but only one has the fortitude to say thank you and have hearts of gratitude. And may the Lord really, I know things are hard and I know things are challenging and I know they're going to get more challenging. I know the culture is going sideways. I know the world's lost love and they're just full of sin. But I'll tell you, if you're not careful, you're going to lose, you're going to lose a heart of gratitude for the faithfulness of God in your life. You're going to forget how good he's been to you. And you're going to forget the principle that Paul says in Romans. He asks this question. It's almost like he pauses and he says, don't you know, and I'm paraphrasing, that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance? Have you forgotten that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance? And as we live out our lives, salt and light, we live out our lives in such a way where we're, we're forthright and we're in tune with the Lord, we're abiding in Christ, we're walking that that line of the salt and light of the earth that we are full of gratitude so that our hearts are connected with others. And we come to him with great thanksgiving. And Lot 
You know that things are going to get worse for him because there's no mention of him expressing any kind of appreciation from this. Something to learn. Father, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to take the words of our time today that you would have your way with us. I pray, God, that you would envelop our hearts with a sense of generosity. I pray at the end of our time today that you would deal with the spiritual warfare that's ongoing in minds and hearts today. That you would give us true victory and strength, clarity of mind that like your word says, I just pray over us that, that we would be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we can come to you, make our requests known to you, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I just pray in a special way tonight for Pastor Ian and Katie as they attend to some things that have called their full attention. May you bless them and give them wisdom. May you fill them afresh with your spirit tonight. Give them clarity of mind. Give them comfort and peace, Lord, tonight. And you know all of the details surrounding where they are and what they're doing, and we pray for them, God. We pray that you would take care of them as they are partnering together in love and grace to be faithful servants of you. And so God, as we leave here, may our hearts be filled with gratitude and love towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.